Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you all today. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open it to Roman or to Revelation, sorry. Revelation chapter 11. Now, as, uh, as some of you know, we, we had a break-in here last Sunday night. I'm sure most of you know this now. And I just wanted to let, uh, let everybody know that we've had a security system installed. And uh, I wanted to thank everybody for uh, the outpouring of support that we received. Uh, people offering instruments, media equipment, and, and everything. And so, uh, uh, just to encourage, encourage you all... I wanted to let you know that we received a check from a local business who heard about the break-in, a check for $5,000 to recover uh, the replacement of some of what was stolen. And so we, we really have a lot to be thankful for. You know, we know that we can worship God uh, regardless of what we have. You know, if we have the Word, we have enough. But uh, still, we can be thankful for, for the uh, supply that the Lord has so generously provided So, Revelation chapter 20. We're going to continue on through the book. And here it is the beginning of a a new cycle, a new section in the book. And and it's one that really arrests the attention of many people because uh, in chapters 12 and 13, there are beasts and there are marks and a lot of attention has been given to these things. Um, And unfortunately, in, in my opinion, I think most of that attention misses the mark. But, uh, but we start in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. We're going to cover all of chapter 12 today, but we're going to start in verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, or seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness which, uh, where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your care. And Lord, I pray that this morning we would meet with You. It's why we're here. We're not here just to hear the Word preached, though we are here to hear the Word preached. But Lord, if all we have is the best that men can do, then all we have is the best that men can do. And so Lord, I pray that You would empower the preaching of Your Word this morning. That You would be with us, Lord, in the songs that are sung. And that You would help us, God, to honor You, to give glory to Your name. That You would sanctify us, Lord, that we would be nearer to You. Lord, that we would know that You are with us and in this place this morning. 
Lord, I pray that you would do these things for our good and for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, we've been moving through the book of Revelation and picking up speed as we go. We're already at the middle of the book. And, uh, and this section, chapter 12, 1 to 14, 5, is the fourth cycle of sevens. And if you remember, each cycle is looking at the same events, the, the history of the church up to judgment, and it's doing so from different perspectives. And as we move through the book, the emphasis is increasingly shifting to focus more and more on the final judgment and the eternal state, the, the new heavens and the new earth. But it begins in chapters 1 to 3 with the seven churches. And it's full of, of warnings against compromising and encouragements to persevere. And the, and the word that comes up over and over again in that section calling the saints forward is the word overcome. And that word, overcome, or to be victorious, or to triumph, or elsewhere it's translated, to conquer. It's a, it's a driving theme in the book of Revelation. If you are a Christian, you conquer. If you're a Christian, you overcome. You overcome sin. You conquer death. You triumph in the world, and you join the triumph of the Lamb. All Christians will do this. This is both a, a command in the book and a promise. People are commanded to triumph and they're promised that they will. But it won't be easy. And that's the point of, of the second cycle. In this world, you will have trouble. In chapters 4 to 8, they show the suffering that the church will endure in the world. And as the church advances the kingdom, they're going to endure hardship. As the church moves forward, hardship comes. Hardships from just living in a fallen world, right? Trials that are common to all people, but also persecution that comes specifically because we follow Christ. There will be, uh, we will be, in many cases, social outcasts, even martyrs. But all of this serves to make a distinction between the church and the world, between those who are for Christ and those who are against Him. And this difference is, is made clear in the end. Those who have faith in Christ, they will stand when the day of judgment comes, and those outside of Christ will fall. The Christian will stand and everybody else crumbles. They'll stand on the last day. They'll enter into that long-awaited rest while their enemies cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Before, in chapter 8-1, they are judged with a dreadful silence. Then the third cycle makes this contrast all the more clear as it shows the, the suffering in the world that falls on God's enemies, on those who do not believe and will not believe. They suffer in many ways. They suffer the hardships that come from living in a fallen world. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think that the unbeliever suffers less than the Christian. The Christians suffer more, but that's not true. Unbelievers in the world, those who are lost, suffer incredibly. Not only do they suffer the hardships that are common to all people, they suffer at the hands of the evil one. They have no power to resist. 
They suffer under the judgments of God that break out in, in catastrophic crises that come, which they have no hope to look past. They suffer the consequences of their own sinful actions. They suffer under the preaching of the Word that convicts them. A word that they hate because it confronts them. And finally, they suffer eternally as, as their hopes and their kingdom are taken away from them and given to the Lord and to His people. That's chapters 9 through 11. And, and you see in that how God can both bless His people and at the same time keep His enemies for judgment. You, you see in this, He is always at work in the world. But there are other forces at work in the world. One was hinted at in chapter 11, a beast. And here in chapter 12, the beginning of the fourth section or, or cycle of the book, we are given a picture of those other forces at work because this cycle, chapters 12, 13, the first of chapter 14, it is from the perspective of the spiritual. This is viewing the unfolding plans of God through the eyes of the angels and the demons. And you know, we, we talk about spiritual warfare in the church. Well, if you ever wanted a vision of what that looks like, here it is. And this is very important to keep in mind because it helps us to make sense of what John is writing for us. Right? In the same way that knowing chapter eleven fifteen, the seventh trumpet, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our God. Knowing that that was written to those who oppose the Lord, that helps us to understand how it's a woe, because when we think about it, that doesn't seem very woeful. That's what we look forward to, the kingdoms of the world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord. But for those who have allied themselves with the world, that's the worst possible outcome. Knowing the perspective of that passage helps us to make sense of it. And this here... We're viewing the plan of God unfolding in the world, as it were, from the realm of the angelic and the demonic. And it's, it's broken up again into seven signs, and though they aren't numbered, we still see them. And it begins in verses 1 and 2. A great sign, a sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown on her head of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. <clears throat> I remember a few years ago, and uh, maybe more than a few years ago now, but as the last time we went to Florida, we drove on the highway to Disney World, the I-4, and uh, I'm sure many of you have done the same thing. And when you're going, you're, you're driving along, something, something caught my eye. Because right there in the middle of all of these attractions, all of the resorts and hotels is a massive Roman Catholic basilica and written on it in gold letters facing the highway are the words, Mary, Queen of the Universe. How many of you have seen that? Okay, there's a few. Mary, Queen of the Universe. Well, its full name is the Basilica of the National Shrine to Mary, Queen of the Universe. And it's become a kind of tourist attraction all on its own. And, and if you doubt that, then next time you go, take a trip to the National Shrine of Mary Gift Shop. <laughs> and if you go to that gift shop, you can find little statues and pictures of Mary, pregnant, her face aglow, 12 stars around her head standing on the moon. 
And that title, Mary, Queen of the Universe, it's taken directly from those verses we just read. And it's easy to see the connection, isn't it? A woman giving birth to the Lord. Well, who else could it be? And later on in this chapter, you have Michael and the dragon battling. We'll get there shortly. But obviously, this is something that happened before the fall. Something that happened between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, right? And then there's the flood in chapter 15. And you could see why someone would say, well, this is clearly a reference to Noah and the ark. It seems to fit. I don't quite know how, but it must, right? Well, there's some truth to those things. There's some correlation between what we read in chapter 12 and Mary giving birth and the flood and prior to creation, the devil being cast down. But that's not what they are. And that's not what's going on here. Mary is not the woman being described in verse 1. She's not even a literal woman. She's a sign. That's the very first thing we're told. It's a sign. It's a symbol of something. So if you interpret the sign, the symbol, as literal, you might come away saying it's Mary, but it's a symbol. And that something that it's symbolic of is the church. Poetic and figurative language is used throughout Scripture to refer to God's people as His daughter or as His bride. The church is called the bride of Christ. We're told we'll shine like the sun. We're told we'll be crowned with glory. It's one of the things we've seen so far in Revelation. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, God's people are called the daughter of Zion, an affectionate name given to them. And one of the places that many of these passages eventually get to, especially in the Old Testament, is the promise of the Messiah. God will send a deliverer and that deliverer will come from God's people. It's the promise made in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Well, the seed, the offspring, the deliverer would be born to God's chosen people, the church. And this picture in Revelation is a picture of the church giving birth to Christ. Now, some people argue about this and they'll say, well, how could this be the church giving birth to Christ? The church didn't come into existence until Acts chapter 2. Well, in its present form, yes, Acts chapter 2, but what is the church? The word means the assembly, or literally, the called out ones, the ecclesia. And in this case, if the church is the called out ones, you can see how people in the Old Testament were uh, the called out ones. You can see how people in the New Testament are the called out ones. They were called out of Egypt, called out of darkness, called to be separate from the world. In Acts 7, 37, the word congregation is used to speak of the Jews in the wilderness before coming into the land of Canaan. But that word congregation is the same word translated elsewhere as church, the called out ones. In Ephesians chapter 2, God brings the Gentiles into what the Jews already possessed. And so it's not described as a, as a new body, as God creating a new group of people distinct from the old group of people, but as an expanded body, one, the Gentiles are included in. The Gentiles are added to the church. In Romans 11, there is one vine with branches being broken off and others grafted in, but it's still one vine. 
In Romans 4, 11 through 12, Christians are called the heirs of Abraham. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 1, those Old Testament saints are called our forefathers. And the point is clear. God has only ever had one people. A people who believed in Him by faith. Now, of course, there are differences between the Old Covenant and and the New Covenant. There are many differences, in fact, but that's not my point this morning. My point is there have only ever always been one people of God. And that people, the, the church, is best defined as those who have been regenerated, redeemed, and declared righteous by faith. Abraham was declared righteous by faith. That's why he was a friend of God. Old Testament and New Testament. All that to say that verse 1 and 2 is a picture of Christ coming from that chosen people of whom Mary was a member. And so the church did give birth to the Messiah. That's really no different than saying Christ came from God's chosen people. But the point needs to be made. The woman who features heavily in chapter 12 is the church, a symbol of the church from Adam and Eve up until the last person who is going to believe before Judgment Day. That's the race of Messiah. Verses 1 and 2 are that point in history when the Messiah comes in the flesh. So that's our starting point in verse 1. Christ is born. Christ has come. What happens next? Scene 2. Another character, a a foil, an enemy to the church arrives. And it's a great fiery dragon. Your translation may say red fiery is probably better because, well, what's he doing? He's imitating the church and imitating Christ, isn't he? And where the church shone like the sun, he is full of fire. He is an immense and a terrifying and a powerful being. And he's even arrayed like Christ, isn't he? Seven heads, each crown, ten horns. It's symbolic of his strength and authority. Really, he is a kind of antichrist. And you're familiar with the term antichrist, I'm sure. Do you know that that doesn't mean against Christ? The term antichrist, it's from the Greek ante, which means in the place of. In the place of Christ. Which means when an antichrist arises, it's not somebody who is opposed to Christianity so much as someone pretending to be the authoritative representative of Christianity. By the way, historical uh, note for all of you. In the time of the Reformation, 1500s, up until really very recently, probably the late 1800s, if you were to ask any Protestant Who is the Antichrist? Do you know the answer they would give? The Pope. Do you know why? Because the Pope says he is the representative of Christ on earth. By his own admission, he's the very definition of Antichrist. Someone who comes as the vicar of Christ. Well, what's happening here is Satan comes imitating Christ, which will become clearer as we get into verse or chapter 13. Who is a dragon? It's one of those instances we don't have to wonder about. We're told very clearly in verse 9, we haven't got to yet, but in verse 9, this is Satan. 
He is the evil one, and his goal here is to destroy God's people. That's his goal, to destroy the Messiah. And to help with the mission, he sweeps a third of the stars down to the earth. This is a reference to the demons that serve him. Of course, it's not literal stars being swept down to the earth. If a third of the stars in the sky were to be brought to the earth, we understand there would be no earth left. Oh, it's uh, the demons who serve him. He's taken them from heaven, from the dominion of the Lord, and added them to his own, the dominion of the world. And they've come to aid him in his purpose to devour the child. And it's, it's really a graphic picture, isn't it? A woman in labor in this vast, hideous dragon with its mouth open wide under the woman just waiting to consume the newborn child. It reminds me of a... Of a, of a Really a gruesome picture we had to review in high school. Don't look it up, you'll, you'll regret it. But it's a, a picture of Saturn. Saturn, the ancient titan, who was, uh, he was told that one of his own sons would dethrone him. And so whenever one of his sons was born, Saturn would immediately devour him. And, and that's what's in the picture. And it's, it's, a, it's a disgusting thing to see. But that's what's being described for us here. It's something unimaginably evil. It's sickening even. And it's supposed to make you feel a little bit repulsed because it's a repulsive image. Once more, in the book of Revelation, it's, it's showing us something we don't often see or at least don't understand. You know, we don't, we don't think of spiritual warfare as being this violent. We don't think of it as being this sordid, but it is. Satan, he's not just a bad actor. In the world stage, he is a fiery, hateful, rageful, vengeful, newborn devouring monster. Satan's war to destroy the Messiah is an awful thing. And you see this throughout Scripture. In the unrighteous slaying of the righteous, especially of children. Cain killed Abel. Pharaoh killing the Hebrew boys. Saul trying to kill David. Athaliah killed all but one of David's descendants. Haman tried to kill all of the Jews. In every instance, by the way, it turned back on their own heads. But probably most pertinent to the text, Herod, learning of the birth of Christ, killed all of the boys in Bethlehem. And there was this constant and relentless attempt to snuff out the seed of the woman. For the devil knew that his birth would be his undoing. And it was a, a vicious and relentless assault against God's people. But Revelation is written from the other side of the cross. And on this side, Christ has already won. You know, we read that the child was caught up to God and the woman given protection in the wilderness. God would preserve His Messiah and He will protect His people. Christ was taken up to the throne and the church was taken to a place prepared for her in the world. A place that God would provide. For how long? 1,260 days. Three and a half years. The same amount of time that Christ ministered on earth. And if you remember in chapter 11, that number is significant. It's the number of completion for the ministry of God's people. The church is safe 
until her mission is complete. Just as Christ ministered for three and a half years from the start of His ministry to the end and could not be interrupted before. How many times do you read in the Gospels? But His hour had not yet come. But when His hour comes, it's over. And for the church, three and a half years. We have all the time we need until our ministry is accomplished. And this is encouraging for us, isn't it? Because though the devil rages, God protects His church. And not only does He protect us, but He has a place prepared for us. Yes, a place prepared in heaven, but also there is a place prepared for us here as well. You say, what do you mean? Well, in part it means that you and I, listen, you and I live exactly where the Lord has appointed for us to live. And it can very often feel like a wilderness and out of control. I mean, certainly it's a place that we know we don't belong. How many times have you experienced that just in the last couple of years? That, that homesick feeling where you look forward to life after death. I mean, you were born here in this world. You grew up here in this world. But now you're not at home here anymore. Your citizenship is in heaven and you have become increasingly aware of that. You're a foreigner in a foreign land. You know, the, the land of our birth has become the land of our sojourning. And we're exiles and pilgrims and wanderers in a wilderness. You know what this is like, don't you? It's the sense of following Christ puts you at odds with so many things in the world. And you, you're like a bird fallen from its nest. How many of you have ever visited a foreign country and felt that way? I know some of you have. It's, a, it's an experience every Christian can relate to. Exiles, wanderers, sojourners, pilgrims. That's language used to describe us because in the Bible, that's how God's people are often depicted. Before they enter the promised land, they spend a lifetime in the wilderness. After the Babylonians invade, they're exiled out of their home for 70 years. Exiled. They're, they're not in Jerusalem. They're not in the place they belong. They're in a foreign place with people who don't speak their language, don't follow their customs, don't value their values. Those are depictions of how the church works in the world. There's a sense where we're just passing through. The, the world is not our home, at least not in its present condition. And so we often wonder, well, I got, why doesn't God just take us away quickly? Why doesn't the moment somebody believe, God reach down, plucks them out, puts them into paradise? Well, He doesn't do it because He doesn't want to. Now, you remember Jesus in His high priestly prayer? You remember what He prays in John 17? He prays not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be preserved and kept in the world in order to bear witness for what God has done. We're left here as salt and light. We're left here for the glory of God and for the advancing of His kingdom. That's what God has called us to do in the time of our pilgrimage. To live for Him and to honor Him and even to lay down our lives for Him. But we do it in the place that He has prepared for us. One of the temptations we face as Christians sometimes is to think that we are wiser than God. And we think, you know, it would be a lot better for me if I was born in a different country. Or if I was born in a different time. I just wish that I was born 
you know, in the, in the 1800s or the six or whenever it is, maybe it's the future. We would prefer different circumstances. You know, that kind of speculation really only serves to increase your anxiety. And it does it by tricking you into thinking, you know, there really was a better time and a better place for me to be alive. No, there wasn't. And you might, you might think there was, but that's not true. God has prepared a time and place for you here. You know, Acts 17, 26. And there, there's a comfort in knowing that you were born and that you live in exactly the place and time God has ordained. It's not random. You, you didn't show up 100 years too late or 100 years too early. You weren't born in the wrong country or to the wrong parents. You were born in the century, in the country, in the city, to the parents that God prepared for you. So you don't need to worry about maybe, if you, have, maybe you should have been born a few hundred years ago or some other place. God knows what's best for His people. And right now, for everybody in this room, I, I can say confidently, this is the best possible time for you to be alive and the best possible place for you to be. And I can say that confidently because God is the one who has placed you here and He doesn't make any mistakes. doesn't mean it can't change if the opportunity or necessity arises, but it isn't something you have to worry about. God has prepared a place for us. And that place also is a place of protection from the evil one. How does God protect us from the evil one? Well, what follows in scenes 3 and 4 is a description of what happened when that child was born and was victorious. Verses 7 through 17, they show us how we're protected. Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimonies, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed down the river that the dragon had poured out. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It begins with the war in heaven. Michael and his angels against Satan 
and his. And Michael is victorious and Satan is hurled down. That's one of the, one of the things you'll notice in the book of Revelation and really in all of the Bible. Often you'll read about wars and battles and armies being assembled. But whenever they fight against the Lord, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's always short. There's never any real conflict. The Lord shows up and His enemies are done for. I think of uh, 1 Kings, the 185,000 Assyrian soldiers who have arrayed themselves against Israel and have been conquering them for, for months, sieging cities, uh, killing the inhabitants of the land. God sends an angel, and when the angel shows up, with the snap of his fingers, the entire Assyrian army is destroyed. 185,000 men snuffed out in a moment by an angel, not even the Lord. Well, it's kind of what you see happening here. Satan and his minions array themselves against God. Michael comes with the angels to fight against him, and he's thrown down. And without thinking, you might say, well, this obviously happened before the fall. But it didn't. It's, it's not. What's it connected to? It's connected to the child and the woman. In fact, verse 10 tells us that this is a spiritual battle about the victory of Christ over the accuser. That's what they rejoice in, right? The accuser has been thrown down. That's what this battle is about. You say, how? Well, first, what does heaven represent in this book? Over and over again, as we've moved through, it represents God's people, those who are heavenly-minded. And so the result of Satan's being hurled down is he can no longer accuse God's people. He had been accusing them day and night, but when he was hurled down, when he was defeated, it stopped. And the reason why it stopped is because now he has no audience in the heavenly places. And the reason he no longer has an audience is because he has no accusations to bring. And the reason he has no accusations to bring is because every accusation against God's people has been answered by the victory of Christ. Which is why the believers are told, now is the time to rejoice. And so what you have in this scene could be summarized as the silencing of the accuser. The silencing of the accuser. That's what happened when Christ died on the cross and rose again victoriously from the grave and was swept up to the heavenly places. This is it from the angelic perspective. It's Satan, whose name means accuser, was defeated and disarmed. Right? Colossians 2.12 He's disarmed of his accusations. He can't condemn God's people anymore. When Christ died and made that once-for-all sacrifice of atonement, it silenced Him forever. I think of Romans, Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. You see what Paul is saying there. If Christ is the one who died, and if God is the one who justifies, what power does anyone have to condemn? And the answer is none. None at all. Not even a little. The moment the accuser opens his mouth, he has nothing more to say. And now the Lord is 
pillaging his kingdom. He's taken his authority away. He's captured his subjects. He's delivering them from the domain of darkness, saving them and bringing them into his kingdom. You know, once we all lived as his servants in the city of destruction, but Christ has changed our nationality and made us servants of Zion. And all of the accuser's power over us has been broken. That's the point of Revelation chapter 12, 7 through 17. Now, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 3. Zechariah chapter 3. <clears throat> this is, Zechariah was a prophet who was shown a number of visions. Similar to what John sees in Revelation, not quite as clear, but still there. And in one of those visions, in chapter 3, verse 1, it's a vision of the heavenly courtroom. And in that courtroom, he sees the accuser being silenced. Starts in verse 1. Then he, so Zechariah speaking, then he, the Lord, giving the vision, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So what's happening? Satan has come to accuse the high priest. R.C. Sproul has a book about this called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. If you want a recommendation for a kid's book, that's it. So Satan comes to accuse the priest and he begins to hurl accusations against him. And we don't know what these accusations were. I don't know what they were. But we do know, if we know anything about them, they were true. Maybe he had been slothful in his zeal. Maybe his love hadn't always been genuine. I mean, he was a high priest and yet he soiled his priestly garments. Maybe he was angry with the scribe or insulted and spoke harshly to a Levite. Whatever they were, whatever these accusations were, you, you understand they were undeniable. And it's the same for us. Our sin, your sin, it's undeniable, isn't it? I mean, it can't be hidden. Well, maybe you can hide it from your children. Maybe you can hide it from your friends. Maybe you can even hide it from your spouse. But not from you. You know your sin. You know the thoughts that go through your mind. And you certainly can't hide it from an all-knowing God. I mean, it can't. You have to reckon with the fact, the indisputable fact. Listen, you are guilty before God. We are. If you've ever been angry, Matthew 5, you're a murderer in heart. If you've ever looked with lust, you're an adulterer in heart. Or maybe you're an idolater at heart or a thief at heart. Now, I'm not making accusations. I'm just telling you what you already know. You know, sometimes you feel guilty. Why? Because you are guilty. And you have no answer. I mean, just think about this. Just think about this. What do you suppose is the greatest sin? Think about it. In your mind. Greatest sin. Okay? Everybody, everybody got it in their mind? What would it be? Well, I suppose the greatest sin would be breaking the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Right? Not once, not for a moment, but every second of your life from the day you were born until the day you die perfectly. Now, how many of you have done that? 
How many of you have done that just this morning? How many of you have done that for even a minute? You have loved the Lord in a worthy, deserving way. Love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Well, you know as well as I do that you have never loved the Lord like that. And if, if, if somebody says they do, then they've lied. And if they think they do, they are deceived. Nobody has loved the Lord like that for even a fraction of a second. Not a single day of their lives. And what does that say about the depth of sin in us? Even as believers. You know, it's easy to maybe tidy a few things up. You know, change a few patterns. Go down the list of do's and don'ts. And then pat ourselves on the back and think we've, we've done good. But how do you do with this? Greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How do you do? Sin is far deeper and has infected us much greater than we can imagine. I mean, it still has roots and veins that touch every millimeter of your soul. And it's real. And you can't, you can't escape it. You can't deny that, can you? It's true. That's what's happening to the high priest. It's what happens to us. We are right there, standing where he stood. Not a word in our defense. Everyone together. The only thing that we can do is hang our heads in shame. The accusation comes. You're a liar. Yes, I have. You're an idolater. I know. Lust with the eyes, yes, I, I do that. Anger, malice, slander, gossip, drunkenness, theft, coveting, jealousy. It's all true. And we stand rightly condemned before God. You know, the, the prosecution doesn't have to try very hard to get a guilty verdict. But when those accusations come, God answers. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Could you imagine? You're standing before the Lord. I mean, if everyone here had to go, you'd be putting on your best clothes, wouldn't you? These garments, it's not the clothes he's wearing. It's a picture to his moral purity. And it's filthy. And so he's standing before the, God, before the Lord God, covered in his guilt and covered in the shame of his sin. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, the Lord speaking, Behold, I have taken your iniquity. And so there it is. God acknowledges the sin. He says there's iniquity there. And what's God do? I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the garments. Listen, God doesn't deny the charges you know, as if they were false. But he doesn't entertain them either as if they had the power to condemn. What does he do? He rebukes the accuser. It's as if he answers, I have dealt with those accusations. And they're no longer fit to be brought up in this court. 
And though the priest is filthy, I have provided clothes fitting and suitable for my heavenly court. Oh, yes, this man, us, we were a brand about to be burned, thrown into the everlasting flames. But God snatched us out and clothed us in the best clothing that heaven could afford, the perfect righteousness of Christ. And the enemy is silenced. He's thrown down out of that courtroom forever. He, he cannot accuse us any longer. Not because we're innocent. We aren't. And it's not because we've risen above our guilt. We haven't. And it's not because we've done enough good to balance the scales. We can't. Mark this. When the enemy comes to accuse you and heap condemnation upon you, and he will... You only have one answer. There is one arrow that silences the accuser. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. You know, we sang those words this morning. Do you know what they mean? How do you conquer the evil one? How do you stand before the throne of God when in yourself you only have grounds to grovel? How do you come before Him with nothing in your hands and expect to be well received? How do you overcome the crushing force of accusation and guilt? The only way is to go in the name of Jesus Christ the Lamb and you go covered in His life-giving, soul-cleansing, sin-atoning blood and you go in that alone. If you take anything else with you, it'll spoil it. It's in Christ that's the word of your testimony. It's not how great a life you've lived for Him. The best of us are pathetic in comparison. I mean, how does your life weigh as an offering to give? No, it's not what we've done. It's not how holy we've become or how far we've advanced in the kingdom. The word of our testimony is we believe. Jesus is Lord and in Him and Him alone we are saved. It's the only word that fells our accuser and frees our burdened souls. Verses 13 through 17, really it just repeats the same. The woman is pursued, so the accuser, accuser is silenced in heaven. The accuser is silenced on earth. The woman is pursued. The church is harassed. She's given wings by God to flee into the desert again, reminding us that the world is, is not our home, but God will preserve us in it. And He does it through the blood of Christ. And what comes from the dragon's mouth? Every time something comes from the mouth in the book of Revelation, it's symbolic of words and their power, isn't it? Well, here, it's a deluge of accusations to condemn. It's a flood of accusations from the mouth of the dragon aimed directly at us. He's acting like the judge here. He's copying, mocking the Lord just as, just as God sent a flood to cleanse the world of sin in Noah's day and turned creation itself against mankind to annihilate them because of their sin and guilt. So Satan, the accuser, hurls a flood of accusations against God's people to destroy them in their guilt. But this time, the creation itself comes to her defense and the waters are swallowed up. And so you see, Satan in every instance is thwarted and disarmed and cast down and his schemes are frustrated. Now, How many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? 
How many you, you've probably heard me say this before, but do you remember the battle between Christian and the dragon Apollyon? The dragon stops him on his way and he asks Christian, Where are you coming from? And Christian answers, I'm coming from the city of destruction. But now I'm going on to Zion. And, and Apollyon tells him, well, if you're from the city of destruction, you are one of my servants, one of my citizens, and you belong to me. And if it wasn't for the hope of turning you back to that city, I would destroy you right now. Well, Christian answers that he serves the great prince. Apollyon tries to dissuade him, but when that fails, he launches a slew of accusations against Christian. He reminds him of how unworthy he is to be received by this prince. He heaps his guilt upon his head to crush him with condemnation. He says, you have already been unfaithful in your service to him. Why do you think he will receive you? And Christian answers, where, Apollyon, have I been unfaithful to him? You failed at the very onset when you almost choked in the slew of despond. He says, you took too long coming to Christ. And then you tried to save yourself in many wrong ways when you should have waited instead for your prince. You were self-righteous. You sinfully slept and lost the choice thing the king had given you. You have been lazy and slothful in your zeal. You were afraid and doubted the Lord and almost turned back at the first sign of trouble. And when you talk about your journey and all that you've seen and heard, pride is always inwardly rising up in you. You desire glory for yourself in everything you say and everything you do. Now how would you answer those accusations? What's, what's your defense going to be? And you're going to say, no, it's not true. Right, you don't know my heart, devil. My intentions were a lot purer than that. Maybe you'll plug your ears and just run away. You'll tell the devil, be quiet and stop bothering me. Or maybe you'll distract yourself and just stop thinking about it. Just be distracted until it goes away. Is that helpful? Does that silence the accusations of the enemy? Christian answers, all this is true. And much more which you have left out. He says, yes, everything you say is true and you don't even know the half of it. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Apollyon cannot condemn him because all of his sin and his failing and his shame and his guilt has been atoned for and pardoned by Christ. And because of this, and only because of this, the accuser is completely disarmed. And so you don't do it by looking at yourself. And you don't do it by looking at your own righteousness. And you don't do it by looking at how far along you've come or by how much you've accomplished. You don't do it by yelling at the evil one that he's a liar or deny the accusations. If you deny the accusations, you become a liar yourself, only more greatly condemned. But you do have a weapon, a powerful weapon to silence, to close the mouth of the accuser, and it works every time. Christ has delivered us from the accusations of the enemy. He has saved us from the wrath of God against sin and will protect 
and preserve all who have put their hope in him. It's like you were standing in front of, the, in front of a dam 10,000 feet high and 10,000 feet wide and, and all of a sudden it's pulled out and the water, the righteous wrath of God against sin and all of the accusations that must be answered, they come crashing down towards you. And it doesn't matter how fast you can run. It doesn't matter how long you can hold your breath. It doesn't matter if you're an Olympic swimmer. It doesn't matter if you have a boat. You cannot escape. But then imagine just before the water crashes into you, the ground doesn't open up, but somebody comes. Christ comes. And He takes hold of you and He throws you away. And you are so far away from the danger, so far removed, that not a single drop of water dampens your clothes. He removes your transgression as far as the east is from the west. How can anyone condemn you now? How can anyone accuse you now if Christ is the one who died, if God is the one who justifies? But then in your place, Christ stands and He endures every accusation. And He endures the wrath of God against sin. And He endures every crushing wave until He is ground to powder. You understand, that is what Christ has done. That's how He saves. That's how He silences the accuser. By becoming a substitute. By paying your debt of sin. That's how He liberates you. By taking your bondage upon Himself. Your guilt and shame as His own. And so the flood of accusations is halted. It's answered by the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. I mean, why do we think we need something else? This is a, this is a shield that is sufficient. I mean, do, 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 do you think sometimes you need to add to Him? Jesus died and... That just puts a breach in the wall that makes it so easy to get around. No, I need no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. That's all you have. But it's enough. It's more than enough. Well, how does it end? The evil one is furious. He's furious because you, a a child of God, are untouchable. He, He cannot condemn you. His only real weapon is gone and it sends him into a furious, bloodthirsty rage because he knows his time is short. And so he must deceive as many as he can and kill as many as he can and and persecute the church as much as he can. And so he goes on to destroy mankind, his loyal servants and his enemies alike. And he makes war on those who are faithful to the Lord. And we'll we'll see how this war is waged in chapter 13. But listen, if, if you're here this morning and you have a sense of the weight of your sin, or you're a Christian, and you just can't shake it, maybe you've never known that you can actually be delivered from the burden of guilt, and you hear those accusations, you know you're a sinner, you know you're worthy of condemnation, listen, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not far from having that burden removed. 
You can have that guilt taken away and those accusations silenced. You can find rest for your souls. And you find that rest in Jesus Christ, the only Savior and Lord of all. So come to Him. Or come to Him anew. Come to Him for the very first time, maybe. But find relief in Christ from your burden and find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord, You have silenced every accusation against Your people. And we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. I pray, Lord, that this morning would be a day of salvation for some. Lord, who have, who have been burdened with the weight of their guilt. They know, Lord, that they have done, they've spent so much time trying to distract themselves, turn their mind to other things, pretend like it's not there, but it's there and they know it. Lord, if, if the Holy Spirit is convicting them this morning, I pray, Lord, that You would give them the grace to come. Lord, to come and be free, to come and be delivered, to repent of their sin and put it away by putting it on Christ. And Lord, for Your little sheep, lambs here this morning, if any of them have been walking around with the weight of their guilt crushing them, unsure if they could ever be free, I pray, Lord, that they would know that You have loved them and that You have silenced the accusations against them and that You have born their guilt and their shame, that they don't need to walk around in it any longer. That they would be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress who came to the cross and whose burden was taken away and thrown down into a giant pit, Lord, never to be seen again. He wandered in Christ for some time, but it was knowing that You, Lord, You have paid you have borne. You have taken His guilt away. That is what sets your people free. And so I pray, Lord, that You would deliver Your people who do believe in You from the shame and the guilt of their past. Whatever it is, Lord, there is more grace in You than sin in us. Help us to believe it. Amen.